Electricast. These migrants were coming up through South America, landing in Tijuana, being denied asylum in the U.S., and finding themselves stuck there. This organization opened their doors, and many of the, the migrants who were arriving actually had technical skills and began to self-build housing. This is your host, Alistair Gordon, and you're listening to Poetics of Place, the series that explores the role of innovative design in the human environment. Today, we're going to learn about the Border Sanctuary, an experiment in refugee housing that's being built in Tijuana, right up against the border wall. Our guests today are Teddy Cruz, an architect and professor of public culture and urbanism at UC San Diego, and Fona Foreman, a political scientist and founding director of the Center on Global Justice at UC San Diego. Welcome to Poetics of Place. For listeners who aren't familiar with the work you've been doing in the Southwest, can you give us some kind of background on how you began this exceptional collaboration? So yes, uh, throughout time, as we have been uh, living inside this incredible contested geography of conflict, we've been evolving really as we engage in a very embedded way. As we all know throughout history, the border itself, the border region really has physicalized the fear of the United States against the other. And in the last four years, that fear, that polarization was increased. I mean, declaring the border region as a site of criminalization and division. And for us, in our own practice, it has always been the opposite. It's been, in fact, a site of urban and political creativity. And that creativity, again, the creative intelligence of people trying to create their own environments out of the imposition of uh, discriminatory and exclusionary political and economic forces, the communities that we've been partnering with, we admire very much because they have been able to figure out ways of not only resisting that imposition, but also creating their own spaces through procedures of survivability, empathy, collaboration, a variety of practices from which we have been learning. The waste of San Diego, the urban debris of San Diego is reassembled and recycled into new housing and, and infrastructures in these informal settlements. We've found that in those uh, transborder, invisible urban dynamics, incredible inspiration, really, to reimagine what architecture can do from the bottom up. How much have you learned through the actual hands-on being out in that community, seeing what you just described as this sort of back and forth of materiality and bottom-up economy? You say conflict and crisis have always been our most creative tools, which I, which I love as a kind of motto. But how do you step outside of the academic circle that you're both grounded in and find that kind of nurturing information and community-oriented position that you've taken? That's, a, that's just a great question. I mean, it really starts with a kind of an epistemic humility. Typically, university researchers, designers based in universities think they have the answers, right? Then they descend down vertically into the community to either test out their inventions and their knowledge. You know, that's a skill, learning how to listen, learning how to suspend judgment. One of the hallmarks of our work is that we've built long relations of trust. We are attempting to build trust in order to enable a process of co-production without subordinating the role of the designer, by the way, enabling the very different sphere of mutual recognition. So that is a very contested space when the community and the designer are trying to negotiate ways of intervening in the gap that has forever separated social responsibility from artistic experimentation. Could you explain 
maybe describing the actual structure and how that works and how it's actually a combination of not just the dwellings, but workspaces that are somehow integrated with the living spaces? Well, the first thing to understand is this incredible context where these two projects sit. So they both sit in an informal canyon settlement on the western periphery of Tijuana, right up against the border wall. So the proximity between this site and wealthy San Diego is just a matter of a few minutes with this big monstrous structure of a wall separating them. We partner very closely with a religious-based organization there who owned a small piece of land in this very unstable area of the canyon and began to receive migrants, initially Haitian migrants, after the earthquake in Haiti. These migrants were coming up through South America, landing in Tijuana, being denied asylum in the U.S., and finding themselves stuck there. This organization opened their doors, and many of the the migrants who were arriving actually had technical skills and began to self-build housing. And it was at this point that Teddy and I met them and began partnering to increase their housing capacity. There are cases that we've documented where entire post-war bungalows from San Diego that are being discarded by developers because they're trying to build larger McMansions. All these uh, little houses are being transferred into Tijuana, into these informal settlements, and people build these metal scaffolds so that the house would be placed on top, leaving the first floor open-ended for more house or small business. So we call it a second-hand urbanization that is layered incrementally through time. This this sort of temporalization of space. You know, the structure is going to happen anyway. I mean, people in conditions of scarcity are incredibly resourceful. And one of the reasons why we began to negotiate with factories to begin with was to find ways to stabilize these precarious structures that people were living in. And with climate change, particularly in this part of the world, there's been all kinds of precipitation whiplash and these people build on very unsedimented sort of hillsides and everything falls with every rain. And so for us, it was like creating an ethical loop, you know, between the factories who draw labor from these communities, right? Using their, you know, structural materials to stabilize the housing of their own workers. So in a way, for us, it was always kind of a pushback against NAFTA to create an ethical loop of responsibility. We began to realize the potential to begin uh, challenging the reductive definitions that have been institutionalized by the forms of governance or planning. For example, the idea that density should not be measured any longer as just the abstract amount of units of housing or people per area. That in those neighborhoods, we were with our partners measuring density as an amount of social exchanges per area as an amount of in, the, the intensity of exchange. And, 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 and the final one probably that is interesting for us is housing, which is really what brings us to the uh, project itself, that housing it cannot just be perpetuated as just units on their own, that in conditions of poverty, in places of poverty, housing needs to be embedded in an infrastructure of support. Let's call that spaces for fabrication, for social, economic, and cultural programming. And here is where education, the university's role in providing frameworks and support to advance those programs in relationship to housing through which the community participates, then things began to really connect. So in other words, we were learning from the community's capacity to integrate what has been divided. 
This seems like a good time for both of you to explain what the project actually is so that listeners can start to visualize. The project itself is really two different projects, right, in the same valley. One is for social housing and one is for kind of a community center. So both projects sit in the Laurelis Canyon in different fingers of the canyon bed. And one is located in a kind of more established area of the canyon in partnership with a nonprofit that runs a small community center focused on very basic needs, food provision, a small health clinic, after-school care for children, and so forth. And the second one is a far more informal, very craggy sort of area of the canyon that's really become a receiving station for migrants who have been increasingly arriving in Tijuana over the last several years. Through the community station's effort, we had met a variety of nonprofit organizations working in Tijuana with migrant communities, figuring out how to create sanctuary and dignified spaces for these migrants to wait for asylum. And it was one of those organizations who connected us, understanding that we had sort of architectural right. capacity, design capacity, right. and this organization that had land and lots of people and was trying to figure out how to accommodate them. Maybe Teddy can just very visually, physically yes. describe uh, these different structures. Yes, obviously it's difficult to visualize what has become a very complex set of relationships, geographic, obviously physical, social, and material. We argue that managing that complexity is really the task of design. Right now, it's not just about objects thrown in the territory, it's really curating uh, the relationship across many of those elements. That's what has been inspirational for us, even though it's hugely masochistic, which is that we don't wait for the client or the brief or even, you know, what accompanies all of that. We have been constructing the client, co-producing the client, and with the client, in this case, co-producing the brief through which we summon a variety of constituencies uh, and support systems even developing particular forms of financialization, let's say, where not only civic philanthropy is important, but also the economic representation of the university. So we have found out that the economic power and programmatic power of our public university can become leverage for communities to develop their own housing and their own public spaces. And that's what we began to realize that we need to work inside our university to propose to our chancellor, to propose to the institution a model that can redistribute resources, but also knowledges. And that's the reason we designed a platform to achieve these things, which we again are calling the UCSD Community Stations, which is a network of public spaces on both sides of the border where education and research is co-produced with our community partners and through that model of collaborative education that is cross-border, begin to incentivize a, what we call a new sensibility towards a regional cross-border citizenship culture. But also it became an incredible excuse to produce a, a double project, in this case, a shared model of urban uh, development, managed and led and owned by the communities. This is what the community station model is, in a sense. It's a re redistributed model of resources and knowledges now, quickly, if I can, the physical context of the canyon, as Fona was uh, beginning to suggest, let's imagine this canyon being the last informal settlement. I hate to call it a slum, but that's what it yeah. is. Yeah. 
of Latin America crashing against the border wall against the U.S. Right there. And it is home to 92,000 people. Right. So imagine an informal settlement that lacks water, waste management infrastructure, sewer, a variety of, right, it's a typical kind of informal settlement. And imagine all that waste, trash that is dumped because of lack of infrastructure and municipal services. It ends up infiltrating beyond the wall into the United States into a, it's an, a natural environmentally protected area called uh, the Tijuana River Estuary on the U.S. side. So what I'm trying to say here, which is maybe difficult to imagine for, for whoever is listening to this, what I'm trying to say is that in our work, Fauna and I have been intervening into this canyon because not only is urgent to reintervene in these places of marginalization, but this place is an incredible example of how border regions need to be places to seek new uh, strategies of interdependence. So by intervening in this canyon, we are protecting the environmental estuary on the U.S. side, which is not only of San Diego. It's a, it's a common asset in the bioregion that unfortunately has been divided by a wall. So that's just to add a little bit of issue about why this canyon has been important. And through that, we are really raising awareness of a cross-border public. We have been working with our partners in Tijuana and in San Diego on creating what we call a cross-border environmental commons, which is an archipelago of conservation, trying to recuperate the remaining lands in the slum that have not yet been squatted, trying to protect them. They are still rescuable environmentally into a, an archipelago of conservation to inject into them a, a economy, community participation, to reforest, etc., to then prevent the waste from reaching the estuary and in so doing protecting our shared uh, environmental assets. Now imagine in two of those islands, that's where our projects are. So that's the reason I think the macro and the micro needs to be connected here. It's a very interesting process that, that has taken years. And often that is very contested. We're interested in continuing to experiment, but really in co-production with the communities. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Poetics of Place. I'm Alistair Gordon, your host and producer. Our executive producers are Mark Netter, Peter Rafelson, and Barbara DeVries. Our editor is Kyle McCarthy, with production coordination by Kiara Kovach. This has been a co-production of Electrocast Media and Gordon DeVries Studio. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage, behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your hosts for the, the Candle, Candle Power, Power Hour. Hour. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for Season 2 of the Wanna Bet Podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that Season 2 starts August 18th. 
but I like airplane. I know you do, but Wanna Bet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. So no more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric acid.